We in this country have seen many new faces. People from all parts of the British Commonwealth and Empire and from the Allied nations. These are among the last pictures to be taken in the capital of the Gold Coast. For when this day is over, Accra becomes the capital of Ghana, an independent nation within the Commonwealth. Hello everybody and welcome to Hello from Britain, the Black British History podcast, a podcast focusing on histories of black British women in the 20th century. Well, I promised you two episodes in July and that's what you're getting. This, the first of two bumper July episodes, is Women and Pan-Africanism, part one. Since I began this podcast, I've been taking you on a slow journey through histories of black women in Britain in different eras and decades of the 20th century. In each episode, I've talked you through everything from West African women in the 1920s having their geles copied by British fashion houses, to black women in 1980s Brixton fighting for what they saw to be reproductive rights. However, in the July episodes, I thought I would take a slightly different approach to the episodes that came before. Instead of focusing on a particular decade or a particular era of black women in 20th century Britain, I thought I would focus on a particular concept instead, Pan-Africanism. Many of the women I've discussed in this podcast had different ideologies and ideas about how best to advocate for a better future for themselves and their communities. However, a shared ideology that I can see across most of the women I've discussed so far and thus think important to highlight is Pan-Africanism. I think Pan-Africanism is a major theme that covers a lot of the activism of black women in 20th century Britain. As there is so much to cover, literally the whole 20th century, I have split my discussion of Pan-Africanism into two episodes. This episode, part one, will focus on women and Pan-Africanism in Britain in the early 20th century. Part two, which will drop at midday BST on Friday the 29th of August, will discuss women and Pan-Africanism in Britain in the latter half of the 20th century. Let's begin. In the introduction to his book, Pan-Africanism, A History, Professor Hakim Adi notes that, quote, there has never been one universally accepted definition of what constitutes Pan-Africanism, end quote. However, notwithstanding that, he argues that, quote, what underlies that manifold visions and approaches of Pan-Africanism and Pan-Africanists is a belief in the unity, common history and purpose of the peoples of Africa, and the African diaspora, and the notion that their destinies are interconnected, end quote. I put it to you that the vast majority of women I've thus far discussed on this podcast believed that there was unity, common history, and common purpose for the people of Africa and the African diaspora, and that their destinies were interconnected. That is why many of these women joined or formed groups that sought to uplift black people in the UK, as well as across the world. Because it appears that most of the women I've spoken to about were Pan-Africanist in their activism, I think it's crucial to dedicate episodes of this podcast series to Pan-Africanism. The origins of Pan-Africanism in Britain can be argued to have been put in motion many centuries prior with black groups like Sons of Africa, for example, being set up to fight for the abolition of African chattel slavery in the 1780s. 
However, when it comes to 20th century Britain, the 1900 Pan-African Conference is a very good place to start. From the 23rd to the 25th of July 1900, Westminster Town Hall was the host of the world's first Pan-African Conference. Promotional material for the conference described it as for the discussion of the native races question and said that it would be attended and addressed by those of, quote, African descent from all parts of the British Empire, the United States of America, Abyssinia, aka Ethiopia, Liberia, Haiti, etc., end quote. This conference was organised by a group called the African Association, which formed sometime in late 1897 to represent, quote, native opinion in national matters affecting the destiny of the African race, to organise itself for the following purposes and objects, to encourage unity among Africans in general and to promote and protect the interests of all subjects claiming African descent, end quote. One of the most prominent supporters of the new association was Dadabhai Naroji, the UK's second Indian origin MP. Peter Fryer, the author of the famous black British history book Staying Power, argues that this was the, quote, earliest recorded instance of Afro-Asian solidarity in Britain, end quote. Moving from supporters to the founding members, the founding members of the African Association were Henry Sylvester Williams, a Trinidadian lawyer and the first black councillor in Westminster, Thomas Josiah Thompson, a Sierra Leonean lawyer, and Alice Victoria Kinlock, a South African activist. Despite Alice forming a part in the formation of the association, indeed, Henry Sylvester Williams later confirmed to an ally that, quote, the association is a result of Mrs Kinlock's work in England and the feeling that as British subjects we ought to be heard in our own affairs, end quote. Only black men were allowed to be full members of the organisation. Women were to be, quote, honorary members and sympathisers, end quote. Such honorary members and sympathisers included Florence Balgani and Isabella Fivey Mayo. Florence Balgani was a white British suffragette from Yorkshire, who at the time was a secretary of the National Society for Women's Suffrage. In 1894, she became the secretary of the English Anti-Lynching Committee, at one time acting as its secretary. At the time she was secretary, the Anti-Lynching League had some high-profile detractors, including the Times of London, who argued that while they were against lynching as an editorial board, it could not be refuted that the, quote, Negro does something to justify such differential treatment by the frequency and atrocity of his outrages on white women. That is a circumstance which ought to weigh Miss Balgani and the numerous ladies upon the anti-lynching committee, end quote. You know, just as an aside, that is very reminiscent of a racist article written by E.D. Morell, a white British writer and well-known socialist who was, on the one hand, very anti-empire sometimes and was against the atrocities that were going on in Belgian Congo, but on the other hand would promote very racist theories about black people in Germany and promote the idea that black people were sexually assaulting German women, women thus trying to make some sort of sense of Germany's racist policy towards black people. So... We see these sorts of arguments often in racist society, these ideas that, okay, we can mistreat black men in particular because they assault white women. That's an argument that seems to often have been used in the late 19th and 20th century as to justify racism and violence being carried out towards black men. So just another side, I'll put it in the notes if you're interested in E.D. Morell and 
his article on black soldiers in Germany during World War II. Back to Balgani. In 1894, Balgani assisted Ida B. Wells in her second anti-lynching trip to England. Ida B. Wells, the African-American activist, had previously promoted anti-lynching in England in 1893 and came again in 1894 to generate more international support for an end to the pervasive American praxis. Ida B. Wells was also aided by Nigerian doctor Oguntola Sapara, who was awarded the Imperial Service Order by the British government for his service and contributing to the eradication of smallpox in Nigeria. While in England, Ida B. Wells was interviewed by The Sun, The Sun newspaper, as to whether she had experienced racial discrimination in Britain, and she said, quote, No, it was like being born again in a new condition. Everywhere I was received on a perfect equality with the ladies who did so much for me and my cause. In fact, my colour gave me some agreeable prominence, which I might not otherwise have had. Fancy my feeling when in London I saw the Lady Mayoress take a Negro African prince about at a garden party and evidently displaying him as a lion of the occasion, end quote. There are two ways in which you could take this quote. You could take this quote as um, a sincere quote that she didn't experience racial discrimination in Britain. And that would not be surprising as many other African-Americans in Europe from Josephine Baker to James Baldwin to Ida B. Wells also reported having very, very positive experiences in Europe in contrast to the experiences they face in the United States, which is an interesting thing about how nationality works to privilege you in certain societies. So whilst prominent African-Americans like Ida B. Wells, as we see in this quote, James Baldwin, Josephine Baker were reported to have had lovely times in Europe, at the same time, black people from Africa, from the colonies in Africa and the Caribbean, reported having a miserable time in Europe. Perhaps there's a conversation there about American privilege versus coming from the colonies at that time. On the flip side, one could of course say that Ida B. Wells was not being sincere here, that she wanted to promote this positive perspective of her experience because she wanted to generate support for her anti-lynching campaign and didn't want to cause people to no longer support her by saying you know, that she experienced racism in their country. So there are two ways you could take that quote, um, but it's an interesting quote nonetheless. Infamously, after Ida B. Wells left England and went back to America, Florence Balgani received a letter from the president of the Missouri Press Association in 1895. In the letter, the president argued that there should be no anti-lynching reform and that black women were prostitutes, liars and thieves. Some have cast doubts on whether Balgani actually received a letter saying this, but regardless, she made it widely known in 1895 that she had. News of this letter caused black women in North America to band together, led by Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin, to form the first national conference of coloured women in Boston later on that year. By 1896, many of the women at that conference played a role in creating the National Association of Coloured Women, an organisation which still exists today. It's worth noting that Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin was married to George Lewis Ruffin, the first black person to graduate from Harvard Law School. Isabella Fivey Mayo, a friend of Leo Tolstoy and Mahatma Gandhi, was a white Scottish poet and suffragette who was also a member of the anti-lynching committee, inviting Ida B. Wells to stay in her home during Ida B. Wells' 1894 speaking tour. But moving away from the honorary members and sympathisers that Florence Balgani and Isabella Fivey Mayo were, let's turn back to the London Conference in 1900. So the conference took place from the 23rd to the 25th of July 1900 at Westminster Town Hall. Topics covered at the conference included racism experienced in the colonies and in the UK, 
and there were many speeches which advocated for reparations for both Africans and descendants of enslaved Africans. At the conference, the rather small conference, there were 37 delegates and 10 participants and observers. The chair of the conference was Bishop Alexander Walters, the leader of the AME Zion Church and president of the National Afro-American Council. In his opening address, The Trials and Tribulations of the Coloured Race in America, Bishop Walters argued that it was important for black people across the world to gather together to uplift the race. One of the most famous speeches that come out of the conference was given by W.E.B. Du Bois, who argued publicly for the first time that the, quote, problem of the 20th century is a problem of the colour line, end quote. You've likely heard this line before, and you've likely heard it because W.E.B. Du Bois wrote it again when he wrote his famous book, The Souls of Black Folk. W.B. Du Bois was a famous African-American activist and academic who explained in his speech at the conference entitled To the Nations of the World that, quote, the darker races are today the least advanced in culture, according to European standards. This has not, however, always been the case in the past. And certainly the world's history, both ancient and modern, has given many instances of no despicable ability and capacity among the blackest races of men. In any case, the modern world must remember that in this age, when the ends of the world are being brought so near together, the millions of black men in Africa, America and the islands of the sea, not to speak of the brown and yellow myriads elsewhere, are bound to have a great influence upon the world in the future by reason of sheer numbers and physical contact. If now the world of culture bends itself towards giving Negroes and other dark men the largest and broadest opportunity for education and self-development, then this contact and influence is bound to have a beneficial effect upon the world and hasten human progress. But if, by reason of carelessness, prejudice, greed and injustice, the black world is to be exploited and ravished and degraded, the results must be deplorable, if not fatal, not simply to them, but to the high ideals of justice, freedom and culture, which a thousand years of Christian civilization have held before Europe." End quote. As well as the many black men who spoke at the conference, some white British suffragists spoke, as well as some North American black women. These black women were Anna Julia Cooper, an African-American activist, and Anna H. Jones, a Canadian-born black suffragette. Anna Julia Cooper gave a speech entitled The Negro Problem in America, while Anna H. Jones gave a speech entitled The Preservation of Race Individuality. Unfortunately, I cannot quote from either of these speeches as their text has yet to be recovered. Although only two black women spoke at the conference, there were other black women in attendance, including sisters Ella D. Barrier and Fanny Barrier-Williams. Both Ella and Fanny were activists and educators. By the end of the conference, the delegates agreed to turn the African Association into a new Pan-African Association, which would have chapters all across the Black diaspora. Then came time to elect the Pan-African Association's Executive Committee. While women were relegated as honorary members and sympathisers in 1897, at the culmination of the 1900 Pan-African Conference, two women were elected as former members of the Executive Committee. These were Jane Cobden Unwin and Anna Julia Cooper. Jane Cobden Unwin was a white woman, marking a notable shift from 1897 when only black men were permitted to be full members of the organisation. She was a suffragette, 
and someone who advocated anti-imperialism, the abolition of slavery, the rights of indigenous groups in colonial territories and Irish home rule. Indeed, Cobden Unwin invited Alice Kinlock, one of the original co-founders of the African Association, to speak to a progressive group of white women at the Writers' Club in London to explain the oppression black women faced in Africa. Cobden Unwin was a daughter of a famous liberal politician and reformer named Richard Cobden and herself became the liberal candidate for Bow and Bromley in the newly established London County Council. Her campaign was led by George Lansbury, who later became a prominent Labour Party leader. There was a lot of controversy concerning a woman, a woman being elected councillor, and she was later taken to court by the Conservative candidate who lost. There was a lot of controversy concerning a woman being elected councillor, and she was later taken to court by a Conservative because the law indicated that women were, quote, considered as incapable of executing public functions. Anna Julia Cooper was a famous African-American activist. Born into slavery, she ended up getting an education at a school for the formerly enslaved, which helped her obtain an undergraduate degree in maths from Oberlin College and later a PhD at the Sorbonne on French attitudes to slavery. She became very well known for her work as an academic and activist and was invited to deliver many speeches advocating for black liberation. One such speech was an 1893 speech entitled Women's Cause is One and Universal. In it, she said, quote, While in the eyes of the highest tribunal in America, she was deemed no more than a chattel, an irresponsible thing, a dull block, to be drawn hither or thither at the volition of an owner, to be drawn hither or thither at the volition of an owner. The Afro-American woman maintained ideals of womanhood unshamed by any ever conceived. Resting or fermenting in untutored minds, such ideals could not claim a hearing at the bar of the nation. The white woman could least plead for her own emancipation. The black woman doubly enslaved could, but suffer and struggle and be silent. I speak for the coloured women of the South, because it is there that the millions of blacks in this country have watered the soil with blood and tears. And it is there too that the coloured woman of America has made her characteristic, has made her characteristic history, and there her destiny evolving. End quote. After renaming from the African Association to the Pan African Association and electing new members of the Executive Committee, the conference then decided on what the goals of the new association should be, including that it should aim to quote secure to Africans throughout the world true civil and political rights, ameliorate the conditions of our brothers on the continent of Africa, America and other parts of the world, promote efforts to secure effective legislation and encourage our people in educational, industrial and commercial enterprise, foster the production of writing and statistics relating to our people everywhere, and to raise funds for forwarding these purposes. End quote. Unfortunately, the newly established Pan-African Association crumbled a few years after the Pan-African Conference in 1900. Williams, the co-founder of the association who exercised the most control over the organisation, Williams, the co-founder of the association who exercises the most control, Williams, the co-founder of the organisation who exercised the most control, found himself often out of the country due to his activism and so, without his constant steering, the association failed to really take off. 
Nevertheless, after he died in 1911, some other black activists took on the Pan-Africanism baton and organised their own Pan-African Congresses throughout the rest of the 20th century. In 1919, the first Pan-African Congress took place in France. The second, in 1921, took place in London, Brussels and Paris. The third, in 1923, took place in London and Lisbon. The fourth, in 1927, in New York. And the fifth, and most consequential, took place in Manchester in 1945. The first Pan-African Congress took place in part due to African-American activist W.B. Du Bois, who felt it was important for the black diaspora to come together and advocate for liberation. This belief was growing in early 20th century black America, where the New Negro Movement, more popularly known today as the Harlem Renaissance, encouraged black people to take pride in their heritage and to work together to uplift the race. In other words, the movement was about ensuring the new Negro was more empowered than the old Negro. The New Negro Movement took its name from the 1925 book, The New Negro, which was edited by Elaine Locke. The book was a mixture of essays, poetry and fiction from various authors who thereafter became more and more associated with the New Negro Movement, like County Cullen, Zora Neale Hurston and W.B. Du Bois. With the importance of Pan-African cooperation becoming more and more important to Du Bois' politics, he set out to organise a Pan-African Congress, finding support from French Senegalese politician Blaise Diagne, African-American suffragette Ida Gibbs Hunt, Guyanese lawyer Edmund Fredericks and African-American activist Rayford W. Logan. It is worth noting that Blaise Diagne was the first black man from French Africa to be a member of the French Parliament. Of Diagne, Du Bois wrote in Alain Locke's New Negro that, quote, Diagne is a Frenchman who is accidentally black. I suspect Diagne rather despises his own black Wolofs, end quote. In French Africa, unlike British Africa, there was a lot of emphasis on Africans assimilating to become black Europeans. The Africans who did well in education and proved themselves to be civilised were known as évolués, and were the small group of black Africans who could become French citizens. Blaise Dagny was able to become a member of the French Parliament because he was considered civilised enough to become a French citizen. Indeed, by becoming a French citizen, Diagne was afforded the privilege of exclusion from forced labour, as all black Africans, aside from the Evolués, had to provide free labour for 12 days a year to the French state. While in Parliament, Diagne managed to change French law to extend French citizenship to more French subjects in black Africa. So, Du Bois, Diagne, Hunt, Fredericks and Logan set out to create a Pan-African Congress. They organised their first one in 1919, but focusing on the Congresses that took place in Britain, as this is Hello from Britain after all. Let's take a closer look at the second, third and fifth Congresses, the ones that took place in London and then Manchester. So the London Congresses. The first one that took place in London was the second Congress, which took place in 1921. All in all, the second Congress took place over seven days, it was in London from the 28th to the 29th of August, Brussels from the 31st of August to the 2nd of September, and then Paris from the 5th to the 6th of September. All in all, 113 delegates attended and at least 1,000 spectators, including people from Spain, Nigeria, South Africa, Guadeloupe, India and Liberia, attended too. Of all the delegates, the US was the most represented, followed by Congo. It is notable that Shapurji Saklatvala, the first Indian-origin Labour MP, was one of those in attendance. 
The Congress was largely funded through the contributions of NAACP members. Du Bois had co-founded the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured Peoples in 1909. Other NAACP members who were involved with the conference included colleagues such as Walter White and Jesse Fawcett, who edited the NAACP magazine, The Crisis. Jesse Fawcett, a poet, writer and activist, was born the seventh child of a large family in New Jersey in 1882. She gained a classics degree from Cornell and became a member of Cornell's Phi Beta Kappa chapter, the first black woman to be accepted. She taught French and Latin for a while in Washington before becoming the literary editor of The Crisis magazine. As I noted, the London parts of the Second Pan-African Congress took place on the 28th and 29th of August, 1921. According to Du Bois's notes on the Congress, two preliminary discussions took place prior to the wider plenary discussions. There was one preliminary discussion with the UK Labour Party, where relations between black and white workers were discussed. John Robert Clines, the leader of the Labour Party, was there, as was Philip and Ethel Snowden and Sidney and Beatrice Webb. Ethel Snowden was a white British suffragette and peace campaigner. Beatrice Webb was a white British socialist who played a key role alongside her husband in the founding of the London School of Economics in 1895. The second preliminary discussion was with the Aborigines Protection Society, an organisation designed to protect indigenous groups in the British Empire. After these preliminary discussions, there were four discussion sessions. Discussion mainly focused on the plight of black people in South and East Africa, the British Caribbean, the US and West Africa. The female speakers included Jesse Fawcett, who talked about the importance of educational access for black girls in Africa and America, highlighting the work that many black women were doing in America, as well as the work that Adelaide Casely Hayford and her niece Kathleen Eastman were doing in Sierra Leone. Other female speakers included Ida Gibbs Hunt and Alice Werner, an Austrian poet and academic who taught Swahili and Bantu languages at the School of Oriental and African Studies, or SOAS. When the London section of the conference ended on the 29th of August, a series of resolutions were devised before the Congress moved on to Brussels and then Paris. The resolutions included demands for racial equality, a gradual welcoming of self-government in Africa, the Caribbean and the Americas for black people, the right to education and freedom of belief, common ownership of land and global cooperation on the basis of justice, freedom and peace. Although Du Bois contended that these resolutions were unanimously adopted, Blaise Diagne took objection to what he saw to be communist theories that were propagating amongst these demands. The third Pan-African Congress, although not funded by the NAACP, was again mostly spearheaded by W.B. Du Bois. It took place in London and Lisbon in November 1923 with the support of the Labour Party and was organised by Du Bois, Ida Gibbs Hunt and Rayford W. Logan. In London, the third Pan-African Congress took place over two days, from Wednesday the 7th to Thursday the 8th of July, with an opening speech from Du Bois entitled History of the Pan-African Movement. In London, the Congress took place over two days, from Wednesday the 7th to Thursday the 8th of November, with an opening speech from Du Bois entitled History of the Pan-African Movement. Speakers again included white Europeans like H.G. Wells, yes, the H.G. Wells, and black people from Africa, America and the Caribbean, including Ida Gibbs Hunt, who spoke on the coloured races and the League of Nations. Among the demands promulgated from the Third Congress, there was 
a demand for a right to African representation and African governments, a demand for rights of access to land and resources, a demand for a right to trial by a jury of your peers, a demand for world disarmament, or if not, the right for Africans to bear arms, and a demand that Africa should be developed for the benefit of Africans, not European profit. Although Du Bois et al. had originally planned to hold further conferences every two years, that, for a myriad of complex personal and political reasons, did not happen. However, in 1945, despite lacking the organisational prowess of Du Bois, the most consequential Pan-African Congress took place. The 5th Pan-African Congress, which took place at Chalton on Medlock Town Hall in Manchester. Historians Marika Sherwood and Hakeem Adi argue that the Congress was most likely held in Manchester due to many of the organisers having close ties to Manchester. After all, the Congress was the culmination of the work of a number of African and Caribbean activists in Britain, including the LCP and WASU, who you'll know from the early episodes of this podcast. Hosted in October 1945, a month after the end of the Second World War, attendees at the conference included Kwame Nkrumah, Obafemi Awolowo, Hastings Banda and Jomo Kenyatta. Do you recognise these names? You should, as just a few years after the conference, these men helped usher in independence in Ghana, Nigeria, Malawi and Kenya. The presence of these key African figures is the reason why many call the 1945 Pan-African Congress in Manchester the most important Congress of them all and the pinnacle of Pan-African activism and ideology in early 20th century Britain. As an aside, it is worth noting that at this, the most consequential of all the Pan-African Congresses, W.B. Du Bois was the only American present. The first session of the Congress was on the colour problem in Britain and was chaired by Amy Ashwood Garvey, who we first came across in episode one of this podcast. Amy Ashwood Garvey was the first wife of Marcus Garvey. The maid of honour at their wedding was a woman named Amy Jakes, who later became the second Mrs Garvey. Jamaican-born Amy Ashwood Garvey first met Marcus as a 17-year-old and soon moved with him across the world as they spread Pan-African ideals to members of the Black Diaspora under their organisation, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Although the Universal Negro Improvement Association, or the UNIA, was co-founded in Jamaica in 1914 by Amy Ashwood Garvey and Marcus Garvey, it gained speed after the couple moved the organisation to New York in 1917. Through parades, speeches and publications in the UNIA newspaper Negro World, the Garveys were able to reach a membership of over 3 million people worldwide who admired their aims to uplift the black race and establish a free republic for all black people in Africa. Marcus Garvey in particular was obsessed with the idea of black people in the Americas becoming new Negroes who would no longer be subjugated under white rule. In Negro world, the phrase new Negro was referenced 547 times from 1921 to 1933. This is part of the reason why Marcus Garvey, much like W.B. Du Bois, is a figure often associated with the new Negro movement or the Harlem Renaissance. Amy Ashford Garvey and Marcus Garvey acrimoniously divorced in 1922. However, while she ceased to be a member of the UNIA, she continued to be a Pan-African activist, working alongside African, American and Caribbean activists for the betterment of the Black Diaspora. She even lived and worked in London sporadically from 1934 to 1960. She lived at Number 1 Bassett Road, where there is now a blue plaque commemorating her life. Notably, Amy Ashwood Garvey worked with W.B. Du Bois, who was an avowed enemy of Marcus Garvey. 
W.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey were enemies in part because of the different views on Pan-Africanism and what Pan-Africanism could mean for black liberation. Marcus Garvey believed in black people from the Americas colonizing Africa to build an empire to rival the Europeans. W.B. Du Bois believed in black people in the Americas working in coalition with black people throughout the diaspora, including Africa, to achieve liberation in their respective countries. Rewinding back to the fifth Pan-African Congress then. As I said, the first session was on the colour problem in Britain. Amy Ashwood Garvey was a chair of this panel. She did not speak on it, but she did speak on a later panel, which was called The Problem in the Caribbean. As the opening speaker on that panel, she remarked that, quote, very much has been written and spoken of the Negro, but for some reason, very little has been said about the black woman. She has been shunted into the social background to be a childbearer. This has been principally her lot, end quote. It is important to point out that Amy Ashwood Garvey was one of two women to speak at the 1945 Pan-African Congress. Many scholars have erased that fact, writing or implying that she was the only woman to speak. Indeed, I have been guilty of this in the past. However, while it is true that most women at the Congress were there in secretarial and service roles, such as the Congress's official stenographer, Miss Dorothy Livings, and the various women who formed the Congress's entertainment committee, there was one other woman who spoke on the panel. Miss Alma Labadi, a Jamaican woman, also spoke on the problem in the Caribbean panel. Indeed, she spoke soon after Amy finished. In her comments, Alma talked about issues mothers and children face in the Caribbean, noting that, quote, the reason for the high legitimate birth rate in Jamaica is that the women have little means of livelihood and therefore get into difficulties. There are no juvenile courts and reform schools are needed. As employment increases, crime decreases. The people of Britain are not unkind, but are entirely ignorant of conditions under which people are living in the territories where their flag is flying. There should be a free press throughout the world to make known the needs of humanity." End quote. With that, I mark the end of this episode. In this episode, I've given you a brief insight into how Pan-African thought developed in early 20th century Britain. As I showed you, there were many Pan-African conferences and congresses that took place in early 20th century Britain that shaped the ways in which black people in Britain thought about black liberation. In my discussion, I also took the time to note some high-profile women who played a role in developing Pan-African thought at these conferences in Britain, including some white women and some black women. Hopefully, if you sit with this episode for a while and reflect on what we've talked about, you'll see that there are many links between Pan-African thought in early 20th century Britain and the political thought and practices of black women activists in early 20th century Britain. That's the end of this week's podcast. Join me next week on the 29th of July as I take us through women and Pan-Africanism in the latter half of the 20th century. Before I leave you though, I want to give you a short anecdote as is customary for this podcast. Because this has been such a long podcast, thank you so much for hanging with me. This is just going to be a very, very brief anecdote. While Amy Ashwood Garvey had a fairly short marriage to Marcus Garvey, with a marriage only lasting from 1919 to 1922 when Marcus Garvey went to marry her friend, her maid of honour, Amy Jakes, Amy Ashwood Garvey was, when married, to use contemporary slang, a ride or die. 
1919, a man entered the NIA's New York headquarters to try and assassinate Garvey. He came with a gun. Marcus was shot once before Amy jumped in front of him to shield him from further bullets. Both Marcus and Amy, thankfully, survived. Thank you.